Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we come to you today and we are reminded of just your, your wonderful blessings that you give to us. Lord, it is good to, to finally have a place to gather, to, to worship, that we can call our own and we're, we're thankful for that. But Lord, we are even more thankful for the spiritual blessings that you give to us. God, to know that you know, he who began a good work in you will complete it that you will finish what you have started in our lives. And we pray now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would give us ears to hear. God, that you would open our eyes and our ears to the truth and the reality of who you are. It's so easy, God, to be sort of sucked into the ways that the world thinks unconsciously and not even understand how our senses can be dulled by these things. But we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to come and to awaken us from that slumber, O God, and to hear and to rejoice and give thanks as you work mightily amongst us. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, in the great Welsh revival of 1904, and kids, uh, if you have done the math, that was over 100 years ago. And uh, this is uh, uh, in Europe, Europe, there was a great revival and there was sort of a motto or a saying during that revival. And the saying was this, bend the church and save the world. Now, that's sort of a funny saying for us because we don't use bend in that way. We might bend over to pick something up, but we don't quite use it that way. But the way the Welsh used that word bend was to convey the idea of submission to God and taking away the resistance to do his will. And so behind that idea of that motto was one of first getting Christians right with God so that the spirit might break out in converting power upon the unsaved. And that's what we need in the church today, is it not? That we might see revival, that the church might be bent because the reviving work of God in the world begins with the restoring and humbling work of God in his church. And we see that in the book of Jonah. That's exactly what happened. You know, I I think, unfortunately, we sort of draw these chapter divisions between chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four in the book of Jonah. But the reality is, is this is just one account. And what God was doing was in chapter two, he was bending his prophet. He was submitting Jonah to his will. He brought Jonah to to submission and took away Jonah's resistance to God's will that there might be a revival in Nineveh, much like uh, the revival at Pentecost where over 3000 people came to faith in Christ. So God moved in Nineveh as well. And, and that's what we see here as we come to this third chapter is, is lessons that we need to learn about the reviving work of God in the midst of an ungodly world, but also in regards to his church as well. And so we saw in chapter two that Jonah was renewed. He was reawakened spiritually and that allowed for the revival that took place as God used him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, we may see something of the need in our own communities in which we live. And we may be stirred, I hope, to pray 
that God would come and do something similar in our communities that we see here in Nineveh or we've even read about on the day of Pentecost. So let's just look at this idea of God's reviving work uh, amongst his people and in, in an unsaved world. So first of all, let's just talk about what is revival. Well, you know, uh, people, Christians will define that differently. You know, it's not uncommon to pass a church. It's not typically a Presbyterian church, but it's not uncommon to pass a church and see a sign out front that says revival here next week. And then you'll have the dates and the times. And uh, in other words, what that church is doing is, is they're going to hold revival meetings. And that's meetings that are meant to stir up the hearts of God's people to turn from their sin and to seek to to be spiritually renewed towards God. It's also a time in which you invite your unbelieving friends and the gospel will be preached mightily, you know, in hopes that those people will come to faith in Christ. And some of the stories I've heard about churches that have revival meetings is they even sort of save those times to, to in hope that God might reach the tough nuts in the community. You know, those people that are really apathetic towards the gospel of Jesus Christ and they sort of look and hope that that God will bring them to faith in Him. But that's not typically how we use the term revival. When we typically speak of revival, we're, we're not referring to a meeting that we're able to organize in order to promote spirituality. Revival is not something that we do. It's not something that we promote, but rather something that God sends down to us in his power. And he does so to spiritually awaken his people from their slumber and in the process resurrect the spiritually dead from their darkness. Those that are that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as a result, people become especially conscious of God. And these two things go together. There's always a sense in which God... Now, hear this. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. There's always a sense in which God first revives his church before he brings revival to the community that that church is in. And so these things go together. They're inseparable. And so if you're going to define revival, um, one person uh, defined it this way, and I think... At first, it might sound a little odd, but I think it's spot on. And that is revival is this. When God comes and visits. When God comes and visits. When the Lord reveals himself for who he is. Now, think about this just a moment. You know of a few examples in Scripture where God spoke to someone face to face. You know, example, Moses. You know, Moses came and he saw the burning bush and he spoke to the Lord there. And what was there was a sense in which Moses was overcome with, you know, who God was. And God even said, take off your sandals because the place that you are on is holy ground. Or think about the book of Revelation and the opening chapters where John is, you know, taken up to heaven. And he sees there Jesus Christ, you know, amongst the lampstands. And he sees Christ in all of his power. And, and John is just sort of overwhelmed by that. But I think probably the most common example that comes to mind is that of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, he is in the temple. He sees the Lord in his temple. And, and the cherubim are praising the Lord. And what does Isaiah say? Oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. But that's what revival is. 
is when God comes and he visits his people. Now, any culture, much like our own, there is a sense that permeates that culture of the absence of God. You know, God is really not a part of our culture. You know, there's might be some religiosity. You know, people might give some, you know, credence to, to God and particularly certain geographical locations of our country. You know, it may be more God and country and all that stuff sort of mixed together. But there's not a sense of who God is like in Isaiah's case or Moses or John. It's just more of maybe a cultural thing or maybe sometimes, and I hate to admit this, but in some uh, sections, cross sections of our country, maybe God is only known as a curse word. So there is a sort of a lip service, I don't mean any pun by that, but lip service to, to God, but not really an understanding of who he is. So there's sort of a sense of an absence of God in our culture. But when God comes in revival, he breaks through this sense of his absence and he comes with an all-pervasive sense of his presence. And it's so pervasive that it works in a way that it just overwhelms people. And whenever revival comes, people are talking about it. It's part of the conversation. It's part of the community. And it's, we see that it is what God is doing. Now, how does such revival come? Well, as we see here in the book of Jonah, it first of all comes with... Uh, his word, it comes by sending his word with power. Look at verses 3 through 5 of Jonah. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. Now, you got to remember this. When it says that he went to, to Nineveh, that seems like just like he got up off the shore after being thrown up by the big fish and he just walked 100 feet and he was at Nineveh's gate. That's not the case. You need to pull out your Bible maps and see where the Mediterranean Sea is and it's clear over here. And then way over here, about up here, is where Assyria is. And so Jonah had to walk hundreds of miles to get to, to Nineveh. But he arose and he went to Nineveh and according to the word of the Lord, now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey and breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Now, can you imagine that? He walked for an entire day, got a third of the way through the city, and then he calls out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then he says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. So he comes and he preaches the word of God. And not only does he preach the word of God, and, and we don't know if this is the entirety of his sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's, there, I th have a tendency to think there was more to his message than just that, as I'll allude to in, in just a moment as we look further at this text. But whether this is the full message or there was more to it, that message was preached, and it was preached with such power that the people believed it. Now, when this humble prophet of God stumbled into the city, that was maybe he wasn't even himself wasn't even thinking something like that would happen. That it would be so extraordinary that these people would hear the message and believe it. But we probably all of us here today have experienced that where we have been maybe in a church service like this or maybe it was a youth group meeting or maybe it was even in your home. You're having family worship or something and you heard someone preaching the word of God or, or teaching the word of God 
And, 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 it, and it may not even been the complete sermon. It may have been part of the sermon. It may have even just been a phrase or an idea that pierced your heart so completely that it sort of laid you bare before God. That the conviction of the Holy Spirit used the Word of God and you're like, oh, Lord. And all of a sudden you were so aware of your sin and so overwhelmed with your unworthiness before God that all you could do was to cry out before him. And, and maybe even in the days ahead, after you heard that word preached, you just couldn't get that out of your mind. It's almost like the word of God pursued you to overcome you and to master you. And that's what we see here in Nineveh, that they knew that in the words that Jonah spoke, that the word of God came to them with overwhelming power. You know, the beauty of knowing the story of Jonah from chapter 1 to this point is, is that we know that the power of his message had nothing to do with the preacher, right? You know, Jonah was nothing really exceptional. As a matter of fact, he had just recently repented of his rebellion against God. He had had, obviously, several days to think about that since he was walking to Nineveh. But still, he had just gotten done rebelling against God. God had dealt with his wicked heart. And now he proclaims God's message as one who needs the very message of grace that he was preaching. And so you would say that the word came with power, maybe even in spite of the preacher or in spite of the messenger. And because God does so in his extraordinary sovereignty. God chooses to bring his word in power when he so chooses to do that. So let us not think that because we, you are ordinary people or because I'm an okay preacher, not, not fantastic, that God cannot bring the conviction of his Holy Spirit upon us or our communities through the word of God. You may feel very timid when you're talking to your unbelieving co-workers or when you're talking to your neighbor and you may think, oh, Lord, they're not going to want to hear this message. Oh, God, this message can't hear, can't reach their hearts. Oh, God, God uh, is not affected by the instruments that he chooses to use to proclaim his word. God brings his word with power when he chooses to do so. Amen. And we see this not only in Scripture, but we see this throughout church history as well. And I know many of you are very familiar with Jonathan Edwards, a preacher in early America. And you know of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when he stood up and he preached that sermon. And he preached on the, the horrors of hell. And he, he did it with such imagery that when people heard that message, that they were overwhelmed with a message of that sermon. And they were crying out in the middle of the sermon. And I think I've read descriptions. I, I couldn't find it to confirm it. But even the people were holding on to the walls and the pillars. And like, oh God, save us! And you see that that sermon came with great power. But what you may not know is that actually that was the second time he preached that sermon. The first time he preached that sermon... He preached it to his own congregation. And you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. It wasn't that Jonathan Edwards was so great. It wasn't that that sermon was just so fantastic. But it was that God chose to send that word in power in the way that he did in 
uh, in Enfield, Connecticut, you know, unlike when it was preached in Northampton, Massachusetts, God chose that. So we must pray for such power in our midst. And so I'm asking you, do you pray for me? Do you pray for me during the week? Do you pray that when the word of God is preached from this pulpit, that it will be preached with power? That it would reach our hearts, including the hearts of the preacher? But that it would reach our hearts and that it would wake us up from our slumber. The thing about sleeping or slumbering is oftentimes we don't know that we're doing that until someone wakes us up and then we're like, oh, whoa, whoa, what? Oh, yeah, okay. I see. I was, I was dozing. I'm sorry. And sometimes we can do that spiritually that we don't even know the slumber that we were in until the power of God so comes to work in our hearts and awakens us that we see the reality of where we should have been. Or do you pray for yourself that as you are in your week and as you are talking to others and you are sharing the scriptures with others that that scripture would be used with power? Or it may be that you are just so timid even, you didn't even want to tell people about the Bible. Because you're like, yeah, I know they're not Christians, so I know they won't believe that. And maybe you just need to pray for the boldness that you will share the word of God. You know, that God might use his word to bring power and glory to himself. See, all of this demonstrates that the glory and the power is exclusively the Lord's. It's not us. It has nothing to do with Kirk of the Plains. It has nothing to do with you individually. It's not the preacher. It's not the message. It is the power by which God sends his word. And when I say the message, I don't mean the gospel message. That is the power of God, the gospel message. I'm just talking about the particular sermon. So God, first of all, to bring about revival, he sends his word and power. But he also shows people of their needs. Now, I'm not talking about felt needs. I'm talking about the true need of the spiritual condition of their heart. And, and we see that in Nineveh. It was a very godless city, as I said in my first sermon. You know, the people were known for doing very wicked things. And like I said, too wicked to mention in a group of, of small children. Now, I will say this. Since uh, my first sermon, I've had some of the kids who said, well, my family went home and we looked it up and we saw what the Ninevites did, you know, and that's fine. You know, if you know that, that that's great. If your parents want to share that with you, then you know that the city was known for such atrocities that they could do wicked things and it didn't even bother their conscience. That's how seared their consciences were. So a little gospel preaching would not have touched their hearts. They could, uh, I, will, I will tell you this, um, they did cut off the lips of their enemies. That's just sort of a mild thing that they did. So you can only imagine that if a preacher showed up and he did a little gospel preaching that that would not have disturbed them. I guess I would guess that they would simply have mocked him. Typically, they had become so callous in their sin, a lot like us today. And the culture in which we are in, that people are oftentimes callous and, you know, they may not hear the gospel or those that do hear our gospel message may become angry with us and say, how dare you try to push your religion on me? You think you're going to make me a Christian? Ugh, I can't believe you would be so arrogant as to do that. But you see, when God's, when God's presence is revealed in his word, what happens, and it comes with power, what happens is like what we see in verse 5. 
and the people of Nineveh believed God. But notice that the author doesn't stop there. It says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And then look at verse 8. It says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them what? Call out, no, call out mightily to God. May they cry out to God and ask for mercy. You see, they've been given 40 days and it's as if the gates of heaven were open and the very face of God's judgment has been seen and they are awakened to the seriousness of their spiritual condition. And so they begin to see themselves and their cities for who they really are. They understand that they have a need that they never ever realized before. And so with a clearer perspective, they begin to realize at last the pollution of their lives and the seriousness of their sin and the danger of God. Now, what I mean by the danger of God is that God is not a safe God. You know, God is not a domesticated animal. He's not a pet. He's not someone who's safe. You see, this is one of the things that happen when God comes. Whether it be to the church or whether it be to the world, that people begin to see God for who He is. That He is the Lord of the universe. He is the judge of the whole earth. And it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so those who once use God's name in vain and realize, you know, they begin to realize that God really is real and that He's true. And there's no corner of the universe where they can hide from Him. It's a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3, where he says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? At last, you see that sense of spiritual awakeness. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my plea for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God, if you hold my sins against me, I cannot stand. And so there is a sense where we see uh, this repentance before the Lord. And that's an evidence of the revival that comes as God works in our midst. And if you look at verse 8, let me... Let me go on even further. You know, you see that sackcloth and ashes in this text. But these weren't just merely outward signs, but they were expressive of an inward reality. And as we saw in verse 8, let me just read verse 8 again, but I won't read the whole thing this time. um, Where he says, but let man, this is the king speaking to the people, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God And then see what it says next. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So you see what this is is a call to turn from their old lifestyle, from their old ways. It's not just let's go through some spiritual ritual to try to appease God. But it's like let's see a change in our practice. Let's see a change in our life. And not only individually, But this entire city did this. They did it corporately. And God oftentimes works corporately in the midst of a church or in the midst of a community to deal with their sin and give them a sense of his holiness and how that ought to affect their lives. And so God overcomes um, a sense of the wickedness of our heart and previously insurmountable barriers to his grace. You know, you oftentimes hear revival, talk about revival fires, revival fires. 
You know, you ever, ever heard that term, revival fire? There, it's, it's oftentimes referred to that way. And I think it might be so because oftentimes when God comes to visit his people, that God doesn't just reach a person or a few people, but oftentimes that gospel, that revival spreads, destroying the barriers that people once erected to contain God or to keep out, keep God out of people's lives. And, you know, Paul sort of refers to this. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians, I oh, can't say that. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Paul, in uh, writing to this church that he loves very much, says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You see, he's praying that the word of God would spread ahead of them and would be honored just like it was amongst the Thessalonians because there were many that had not believed yet. But if you look at the New American Standard, if you happen to have that translation, it actually translates that a little bit differently. Rather than saying, may the word of the Lord speed ahead and be honored, it says, we pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified as it did with you. And that's a sense in which revival takes place. And as the word of God comes with power, it spreads and when God brings revival, it's like I said, it rarely touches just a, a, a few, but it oftentimes typically touches entire communities. And so what happens when God's presence is made known and people find themselves conscious of their sinfulness before God's judgment is that it creates in them a deep desire for mercy. Look, if you would, at verse 9, where the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, there, there must have been something in that king, maybe something even that he heard from Jonah. We don't know. You know, the, the wisdom that I found is, is that in the Babylonian religion, there was no sense of giving hope of mercy from God that you know, th that their religion didn't have that idea of mercy and that God would show mercy. So this must, this whole idea of maybe God relenting and turning from his fierce anger must have come from Jonah. It, it might have been that, you know, that their attitude was is that God has given us an opportunity and sort of an open window to turn from our sin and repent that we might now have mercy. Now, what's interesting about this is and is always present in revival is, is that there's oftentimes no assumption that God will be merciful to us, that he has to do that, that he must. But rather, there is a recognition that there is nothing in me that warrants God's mercy. So our only hope is that in his sovereign good pleasure, that God will pour his mercy out upon us. Do you see the difference? You know, today, it sometimes, even amongst Christians, there seems to be a sense of, well, you know, I sinned, it's okay. God will forgive me. I can sin, it doesn't matter. Which is exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans, right? He said, you know, you can't just say, well, I can sin, God's grace will cover me. You know, that's not what happens in revival, whether it be amongst Christians or whether it be amongst the world. But it's really more of a sense that God does not owe me mercy. 
And so all I'm doing is, is looking to him and my only hope is that he might show me mercy. It's just like the words to the old hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Now, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But I think it's interesting that oftentimes people get to verse, uh, get to verse uh, ten, and uh, and they want to like latch on to that word relent, and then they want to say, does that mean that God changed His mind? Okay, but I think what we need to see here is is that God always welcomes those who repent of their sins, and they turn to Him. That that's what we see in this passage. That if we come to the Lord. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Always, always, always. And not just for those that are coming to faith in Christ, but even for those who believe in him and are his children and they they sin. You see... There is a sense in which we come seeking God's mercy and, and, and we do not trust in our self-reliance. All of our self-sufficiency is gone. And the only hope that we have is God's mercy of, upon us as his children. And so as we come to this passage, we, we should not come to this passage without thinking of our own nation or our own city or our own community the times in which we live are very similar to that of Nineveh. It's, it's not in our power to reach Andover, brothers and sisters. It's not in our power to reach Wichita or Augusta or El Dorado or Butler County or wherever it is that we live. And the communities in which we live, as well as the individuals in those, that reside in those communities, they remain under the judgment and the darkness of their sin, and we do not have the resources or the ability to change their hearts in the way that is necessary. What we need is a visitation from God all over again, like in the days of Pentecost or in the days of Jonah. And in the same way that God evoked a change in the heart of his prophet in the belly of the great fish, so we may bring, so we pray that God may bring about a change in us. To see that even now we are in great need of God's mercy. And until that truth sinks in upon us so that we see our sin and we see our need as the people of God. And we call out to him to be shown mercy on ourselves and our disobedience and our spiritual carelessness and our indifference to holy things to God and to each other and to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we call out mightily for God. For him to bring revival upon us. Amen. Let's bow our heads and meditate upon the word of God this morning. Oh Lord, how encouraging to to come to this passage and to read of your mighty power and work in our midst. Lord, it also shows oftentimes our shortcomings and how we oftentimes um, don't believe that you have such power. 
And Lord, so we're very timid to share your word. Or, or Lord, maybe there's people in our lives that we think, oh, now they may become a Christian because we see maybe some sense of, of goodness in them. But then there's others, Lord, who are very wicked, very hostile, very angry to you. And, and, and our hearts melt within us and we think, oh, yeah, it would be a real miracle for that person to come. And we don't really believe that you can do such a mighty work as to change their hearts. Forgive us, Lord. God, please use your word that was spoken today to open our eyes and to see that, God, you can do whatever you so please to do. It doesn't matter who we are as your instruments or who the recipients of the message of the gospel is, that you can bring about a change in heart. You can take a person who is is evil and wicked to the, the nth degree and you can make them a holy child of God. So, Lord, give us boldness this week. Uh, and, and change our thinking, Lord, melt our hearts and cause us to walk before you, dependent upon you, looking for your mercy, trusting in you, being repentant. We thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.